Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, how are we, Hope? Good. Good to see you. My name's Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you online and to those of you at one of our campuses or in the room right now. Can I share two cool stories with you? Uh, we've had hundreds of people join us for the first time just the past few months. So we sent an email out to them a few weeks ago. Said, hey, we'd love to meet with you. Uh, we'd love to hang out with you, just introduce ourselves. And so they joined us after the services at some of our physical campuses. And we had one lady kind of reach out earlier in the week just for some marriage help. And uh, the couple that they met with said, you gotta check out the church. So they came for the first time this Sunday. Conversation led to another conversation. She came up to the office this week, and I was in the room as she started a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? We had uh, another lady come up and share with us that she's a single mom. She's had kind of a void in her heart for a long time. This is her story. And uh, she said that she tried to fill that void uh, with different religions. She, she was an atheist for a while. And then she said, finally, last year, I right, got it. This is going to work, this whole relationship thing with you. You have got to find me a church that meets on Thursday nights because that's the only nights that I have available. So she did a Google search, showed up here to Thursday Night Live, and in January she said yes to Jesus and she said that was the best decision I have ever made in my life. Isn't that incredible? So God is working. We love hearing stories like that. If you have a story like that, please share that with us. If you're online right now and you don't see us pastors that often, just type it into the chat right now, email us. But we need those stories because that's why we do everything that we do here at Hope. Well, this week, uh, we are in the second week of a series that we're calling DNA. And uh, it's where we're talking about, you know, DNA is that part of you that makes you you, that makes you unique. It's also that part of you uh, that takes those physical characteristics and passes them on from one generation to the next. So my last name's Gardner. If you saw some of my family members, you would know right off the bat, okay, that's a gardener. Chase is a gardener. So there are certain physical characteristics that we have in common. My wife points this out all the time, but we have gardener legs, apparently. I didn't know this, but they're kind of skinny, can't hold muscle. So my dad has the same legs. My uncle has the same legs, so does my aunt and my grandmother. So imagine having the same legs as your grandmother, that's my life. So I actually brought some pictures of some family members to show you how much we look alike. Here's the first one, this is my brother. That is not my brother, but you guys keep telling me that he is. So I was actually online, watching online services a few weeks ago, which I never get to do. And so the worship was amazing. Uh, the, the video that introduced the sermon was kind of familiar, but also amazing. And lo and behold, I forgot, but my ugly mug pops up and I'm like, oh, I'm preaching. So I go to exit out and right before I can, there's a user named K-Dubs. We love you, K-Dubs. And K-Dubs just types in Hawkeye's back with an exclamation point. And I don't know who Hawkeye is, so I'm kind of offended. I'm like, K-Dubs, I can read this. I can't hear you, but I can read you. And they just type in, yup, Y-U-P. Like, it doesn't matter. You're Hawkeye's in my eyes. So I do a quick Google search, and lo and behold, it is a superhero. So I'm feeling good. at Like, you don't want to look like a murderer, but a superhero is kind of cool. But then I do a deeper search, because I don't know about this, like, Marvel, marvelous 
world of Harry Potter, Batman stuff. So I, it's not because I'm better than you. I'm doing dorkier stuff, like reading sci-fi and stuff. So I do a Google search and come to find out he is a superhero, but he is the worst superhero ever. <laughs> and I have heard that that is very controversial, all right? But it's true. Like, I search, and there's a dude that can, like, bend space and time, Doctor Strange. There's the guys with the suits, like Ant-Man and Iron Man. Thor's like a literal god. This guy can, like, shoot a bow and arrow relatively well. He's like a glorified turkey hunter from Fuquay. That's all he is. <laughs> and there's nothing special about his weapons. He's not like the wielder of some mythical ancient bow. Dude went to Bass Pro Shop, got a compound bow, put a leather jacket on and called himself a superhero. So at first I was excited, now I'm not. Uh, please send all hate emails to Jason Gore at gethope.net. But <laughs> I do have real pictures of some of my family members. I'm an only child, I don't have brothers and sisters. So here's some pictures of me and my father at different ages. This is us as babies, isn't that cute? Go to the next one, a little bit older. Look at those, kind of look a little bit similar there. Here's the one that'll freak you out a little bit. Very, very similar. I think I saw Aaron Pelsu wearing that sweater that I have on like last week. <laughs> a little bit older, I think this is our senior pictures. Look at that, we're like the same person. And now, here's my dad in all of his glory. Look at those deltoids. This is the silver fox. And here is not me, because I'm not showing my dad bod to like 10,000 people, but you can see that DNA is powerful, right? It's the way that physical characteristics get passed down from one generation to the other, and in the same way, Things like culture and passions and mindsets can be passed down from one generation of an organization to the next generation. So that's how we, we pass down certain characteristics from one generation of a church to the next generation. So it's these characteristics that we've been talking about in this series called DNA. Last week we talked about the characteristic of big faith. Everyone say big faith. And we said that we wanted big, audacious, bold faith to be a part of everything that we do here at Hope, that we don't wanna insult God uh, and miss out on miracles by not taking steps of bold faith. So that was last week. This week, uh, we're gonna be talking about what I believe is the most important characteristic in this series. Now, all of them are important, but I believe that if we're ever going to accomplish our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, we're gonna have to have this one front and center in all that we do. And it means that you, the people that call Hope Home, are gonna have to own this and embody this and live this characteristic out. And I'm gonna warn you, it's one of the toughest things to live out that we find in the Bible. And it's our characteristic that we call grace and truth. We want to live out grace and truth. So everyone say grace and truth. And automatically, like, Chase, those are two characteristics. Yes, I know that, but the Bible has this habit of putting those two words together all the time, which is weird, because at first glance, these two words seem like opposites. They seem like oil and water. It seems like light and dark. It's two things that at first glance we would never put together, and yet we read in John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth together. And a lot of times we see those two words as a list of two options. 
that I can either be filled with grace or I can either be filled with truth. And in fact, you'll actually talk to people depending on their personality. They'll just say, hey, I'm more of a truth person. I'm kind of a truth guy, I just tell it like it is. Or I'm more of a grace person, more of a grace guy. But the Bible says that we don't have that choice. We don't have that option. That just, just to be one or the other. God says that we need to be like Jesus and Jesus wasn't grace or truth. He was full of grace and truth. He was filled to the very top with grace and truth. He was filled to the brim with limitless, radical, no exceptions grace. And he was also filled to the brim with revealing, grounded, no exceptions truth. And as Jesus followers and as his church, we should be this way as well. So as a church, we can't shy away from showing all different types of people grace. And we also can't shy away from proclaiming all the truths that we see in the Bible. So that's the first thing that you need to hear about grace and truth, that when it comes to grace and truth, God has not given us an option, we have to be both. But he has given us an order. He has given us an order. And in the Bible, what we see is that grace comes first. Grace before truth. And you see this all throughout the Bible. We see God going to people and treating them with grace just unmerited kindness, which is what grace is, before he asked them to respond to truth. And I could give you dozens of stories, but there's a guy named Abraham that was really important. You can go back and read it in Genesis chapter 12. But before Abraham had done anything, God went to him and said, Abe, we haven't met, you don't know me, but I've got a ton in store for you. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna use you to bless the whole world. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you promise after promise. And only after that does he ask Abraham to do something in response to that. Or you can look at the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt. God just kind of shows up and does miracle after miracle, frees them from their slavery. They walk through the Red Sea on dry land. And then after that, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law and says, respond to that. So you see, in story after story, what we see is God treating people with undeserved kindness, showing them grace before he asks them to respond to truth. And it's such a pattern in the Bible that there's actually a theological word that Bible scholars use, and it's this term that they say, indicative before imperative. Indicative before imperative. And all that means is you will never find a command in the Bible just by itself. There's always something before it. So the commands in the Bible always say something like, I am the God who freed you from slavery in Egypt. Now, here's what I want you to do. Or I am the God who showered you with mercy and with grace. Now, that's what I want you to do. It's grace and that's truth, see? In fact, this is such an inbuilt pattern in the Old Testament that it flows over into the New Testament as well. And in all the letters or the epistles, you know what that word means, just letters, it's the books after the Gospels and Acts, so like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, all of those books follow this pattern as well. The first half of the book, the authors talk about God's amazing grace and his mercy and all the things that he have give, has given us, then they move into application or responding to truth. Like the book we're gonna hang out in this week, which is Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters talking about the grace of God, and then he spends five chapters talking about how we should respond to that truth. He kind of starts the letter off by talking about what the plight that we're kind of in, how we're all kind of stuck in sin, 
And then he talks about the amazing grace that we have in Jesus with that famous verse in chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how that salvation, that redemption is free. Then he talks about that grace in which we now stand. Then he moves into talking about all the gifts that we have in him, about how we have uh, the spirit as a gift who changes us and transforms us. And he reaches this crescendo at the end of chapter 11, just thinking about all the grace that God has given us. And he bursts out into song with, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then he gets to Romans 12, one. Therefore, because of that grace, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then he shows us what that response looks like. And I love that. That's basically a summary of what the Christian life is. Christian life is just the, the, the proper response to the amazing grace of God. But that's what we see, grace, then truth. God first shows us grace, and then he asks us to respond to truth. And there's a reason that he does this. It's because God knows that a heart has to be prepared before it can receive truth. A heart has to be tilled up. A hard heart has to be broken up. It has to be made into an environment where the truth can send down roots and actually thrive. So God uses grace to begin the process of opening our hearts to him and to the truth. That's what Paul says in Romans 2, 4. It's God's kindness and it's intended to lead you to repentance. See, it's a process. Grace prepares a heart to receive the truth. Or you could say grace builds a bridge to the heart over which truth can go. Or grace plows the field of the heart so that uh, the, the, the truth seeds can find purchase and grow. So you need both truth and grace. When it comes to grace and truth, we don't have an option, but God has given us an order. Grace comes first and then the truth. And what God says is, that's how I have treated you. Now, as Christ followers and as churches, I want you to turn around and treat other people the exact same way. I want you to use grace to build a bridge to a person's heart. I want you to show the kind of grace that breaks down walls and breaks down barriers and builds up trust. And then, when the heart is ready, when grace has done its work, I want you to apply the truth. Now, if I were in a different church in a different city, given this message, I'd probably just move on to truth. But I don't know if you know this, we are in the South, if you guys realize that. We are in what's called the Bible Belt. And I think just growing up here, I think that we have heard this term grace so often, it's almost lost its meaning. And it doesn't have the effect that it should. You guys know that I'm Southern. I don't have an accent or anything. I was born right here in Cary. Do you guys know that? And uh, I was raised in Charlotte. I am North Carolinian, like born and raised. I'm talking cheer wine, niece's liver pudding, anyone? Put it on some white bread with some mayo. What kind of mayo? Duke's, right? Duke's mayo. I'm talking cruising the strip at the Dirty Myrtle like every spring break. I am North Carolina born and raised. There's like 26 of us left in the state. But what I know <laughs> is that in the South, we're really good at being nice to people, at being polite to people, but we're not that good at showing the type of grace that Jesus wants us to. We're really good at saying, bless your heart, when inside we're thinking, you are dumber than a bag of hammers, right? We're really good at Southern hospitality, but we're not that good at accepting people that are different from us. 
and it's not just the South, I'm kind of picking on us, but I didn't grasp the depth of the grace that Jesus wants me to display until much later in life. And so I wanna hang out on grace here for the majority of our time because you have to understand the type of grace that God is talking about, he's not talking about just cutting people some slack. He's not talking about just giving a person a break every once in a while. He's talking about some pretty risky, intense, radical, life-changing grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're just gonna be in one short little sentence. It's gonna be in chapter 15, verse seven. And I could have kind of unpacked this whole grace thing in lots of different verses, but I went with verse seven because it's so short, it's hard to argue with. (laughs) And you're gonna wanna argue with it, and I am too, but this is what it says. It just says this simply. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Can we actually read that together? It's so simple, we can do that. Let's read it together. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Okay, that's the type of grace that God wants us to display. It's an accepting grace. And that term accept, it literally means to open your arms and receive, like another person. So when he says accept, he literally means open your arms and make room in your life to draw in and accept another person. And he says, I want you to do this accepting in a certain way. How are you supposed to accept? We're supposed to accept the same way that Jesus accepted you. So accept others just as Christ accepted you. And if you think about that for more than five minutes, that is a crazy idea. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, accept others just as your friends accepted you. Or accept others just as your mama or your daddy accepted you, but to accept others just as Jesus accepted you, that's raising the bar. That's putting the standard about as high as it can get. That's a little radical. That's a little offensive, actually, if you think about it, because how did Jesus accept me? Well, he accepted me at my lowest. He accepted me with all of my baggage, with all of my hangups, with all of my addictions, with all of my sin. He accepted me right where I was at. And he didn't have any restrictions. And he didn't make me meet any requirements. He didn't make me change a thing. He just opened his arms and accepted me right where I was at in that moment. And he says, that's how I've treated you. Now that's how I want you to turn around and treat other people. And that is so hard. Because not only are we not naturally good at this, I think we we usually get this backwards. Here's what I think. I think that all of us have kind of a list, a secret list, a checklist, if you will, that we use to judge whether or not a person is worthy of being accepted where they are. And it's like a list of criteria that we use to judge whether a person might fit in my life if we decide to accept them one day. I have a list right here. It's not my list, it's not your list, but it's got some stuff that would be on all of our lists, right? the criteria we use to judge whether someone is acceptable. There's politics, do they vote like me? Do they agree with me politically? If not, can't accept them. There's sexual orientation, there's physical appearance, there's race, sadly, which could be its own sermon series right now. There's socioeconomic level, there's religion, there's even language, and we use this, we say, do you check this list? Are you like me enough for me to accept you? If not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push you away. 
gonna push you away. So here's what happens. We walk around with this list and we make these little mental judgments of people that we come across all the time. And we see if they check these boxes or they don't check these boxes. And if they do, we open our arms, we draw them in. If they don't, we push them away. So we meet someone new at the pool or on the golf course or just somewhere at the gym. And we start talking and we start having some small talk, right? Well, eventually that small talk is gonna, is gonna make its way into these subtle probing questions where they're trying to figure out if you check the boxes on their list and you're trying to figure out if, you, if, if they check the boxes on your list. And as soon as they miss the mark, as soon as they don't check one of these boxes, you push them away. There's no room in your life for them. So you'll be talking to someone new. Okay, you're from North Carolina, that's cool, all right? You're not somewhere crazy like California, New York, that's awesome. Uh, you go to church, okay, that kind of checks a box there. Um, you, um, you make kind of the same amount of money as I do, okay, similar vacations, we'll check that box. Uh, you do agree that Popeye's is the superior chicken sandwich, which it is, so we're gonna check that box right there. But then I follow you to your car, and I see you get in, and I notice, ah, oh, you got a Biden sticker. You got a Trump sticker. And I figure out you don't vote like me. I'm like, so close. And instead of opening my arms, I push you away, I push you away. And that's just how we treat the new people that we meet in our life. We're even worse to the people in our life that we can't push away. People like family members, especially extended, bosses, right? uh, classmates, roommates, college roommates, the friends of your, uh, the, the parents of your kids' friends, right? You see, with them, because we can't push them away, what we try to do is every time we meet them, we try to convince them that our checklist is the right checklist. (laughs) That this checklist is right and yours is wrong. We try to convince them that our political views are the correct political views, that our news source is the best news source, that our diet is the best diet, that they're wrong and that I'm right. And there's these little battles that play out in our homes and at family gatherings and at work and especially on, online where you're trying to convince them that they're wrong and you're right, right? And they're trying to convince you that you're wrong and they're right. And if they would just check this box, if they would just come over to the good side, they would just meet this one criteria, then they could be accepted. Then they could be received, but not until then. And there's so many churches and so many Christians that get this whole thing backwards where they would rather be right than be accepting. They would rather build a case against someone than build a bridge to someone. They try to win arguments instead of win hearts. And that's not what Jesus did when he was here on earth. He didn't try to win an argument. He tried to win our hearts. He didn't build cases, he built built bridges. And so what Jesus commands us to do as Christ followers is to take this list of criteria, to take our restrictions, to take these requirements and you open your arms and you make room in your life and you receive and you accept and you show grace because that's what Jesus did with you. Now at this point, some of you might be feeling a little uncomfortable and saying, well, not a little dangerous. I mean, I get what Jesus is saying. We should accept people. But surely there's a limit. Like I I get accepting people that are hurting. I get accepting people that, that are down on their luck, that need a little bit of love. But surely there's a limit somewhere. I mean, if I am that accepting, won't won't that person and the people watching my life eventually conclude that I approve of their lifestyle? 
If I am that accepting, somewhere along the way, someone might conclude that I condone or agree with their behavior. I mean, bad stuff could happen. Won't they just keep sinning? Won't they just keep going down the path that they're on? Someone has to intervene. Someone has to argue. Someone has to convince. Someone has to convict. And what you're doing right there is you're confusing your job description with God's God description. Your job is to accept. Your job is to show grace. Your job is to receive, to welcome in, and also to proclaim truth. But it's God's job to transform. It's God's job to convict. It's God's job to convince. There is a God, and you are not him. And some of you are in relationships that are so dysfunctional because you switched those job descriptions. And I think that most of us that feel that fear, they just gotta have this truth, they just gotta have this truth, that's the only way they're gonna change. It's because you underestimate how powerful grace can really be. There was a British conference of comparative religions decades ago, it was a real thing, and experts from all around the world were debating, what's the unique thing that Christianity brings to the table when it comes to religion? And they said, well, it's the incarnation. And someone's like, no, there's a few other religions where God comes down in human form. They're like, well, it's gotta be the resurrection. They're like, no, there's a few stories in other religions, not proven, where people come back from the dead. And so C.S. Lewis, the famous author, kind of wandered in and said, what are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about the only unique thing that Christianity brings to the table. And he says, that's easy, it's, it's grace. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we live in a grace-starved world. We live in a world that is full of judgment, that's full of expectations, that's full of shame, that's full of critique, and that is empty of grace. I mean, just look around. You know what the opposite of grace is? Twitter. <laughs> I mean, have you been on there? There's no grace. And I honestly think that our culture has radically changed just within the past 10 or 20 years. And I can't prove this, but I remember growing up living in a pretty relativistic society. Like, you just do what you wanna do. Don't hurt anyone, and we'll get along. I'll do my thing, you do your thing, I'll stay out of business, out of your business, you stay out of my business. And it's so different. I think we've moved from a relativistic culture into a culture of honor and shame. Where you have to do things and we'll show you honor. You have to publicly and verbally agree with certain things. And if you don't, we're gonna attack you and we're gonna malign you and we're gonna shame you and we're gonna insult you and we're gonna mock you to your face and behind your back and on your phone and in your text messages and on every social media site that we can. Do you know the suicide rate for teens has doubled since 2008? That's a 100% increase. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in people aged 10 to 34. Our culture right now will shame you and shame you and shame you and shame you until you literally take your own life. You know, we're growing pretty rapidly as a church, especially because of our online presence. And every single week we'll get emails or we'll get phone calls and uh, it's someone saying, hey, I'm not a believer yet, but I'm liking this worship thing. I just, I just need to know, are you gonna accept me there? Or hey, I, I've been divorced twice and my last church didn't really like that, so I just gotta know, will I be like welcome there? or I'm in a gay relationship, I'm in a lesbian relationship, I'm transgender, and I just really need to know, 
Like, I love this whole worship thing. I'm really excited to see what the Bible has to say. But before we go too further, I just got to know, will we be accepted there? And it breaks my heart every time I hear that. That we have gotten to the place as Christians and as churches where they even have to ask. The one place they're supposed to find grace and they don't find it because that means that they've encountered Christians who have experienced the grace and the mercy of God, who have been drowned in the mercy and the grace of God and who have some, for some reason concluded that they don't have to turn around and show other people that same sort of grace. And it shows me that not only are we failing when it comes to this grace thing, but we are also failing when it comes to this truth thing because these people just feel beat up by the truth that we Christians have. The truth that we have was never meant to be used as a weapon. It's medicine, right? It's a cure. The truth that we have is not a truth that says you are condemned, but that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a truth that says you should be afraid, but instead we have not received a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear, but a spirit of sonship and daughtership, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's not a spirit that says get better or try harder. It's, it's a truth that says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will what? Right, not cover you with shame, not proclaim your guilt, but set you free. It's not condemnation, it's not shame. It is good news of great joy for all people. So the truth that we have is not that you are bad and I am good, it's that we're all bad. But the good news that we have is that you have a loving heavenly father and you have a savior that came to die for you to pay for a real thing called sin to save you from a real place called hell and he's coming back for you. And it's a truth that says that new beginnings and fresh starts are a reality. It's a truth that says that, that healing and restoration and freedom and forgiveness are offered to anyone and everyone at any time without exception, without condition, and without charge. That's the truth that we have. And so you need to know that we believe every single page and every paragraph and every sentence and every word, and there is no error in this. We believe that this is the inspired word of God, and we don't have any problems with this. It has a few problems with us that we're trying to work out, right? But we believe that we have the honor and the privilege of sharing this truth that leads to freedom after We've put in the time to build the bridge and to win a heart and to show grace. So it's grace and truth. We've been called to be full of both and God hasn't given us an option, but he has given us an order. And we wanna do everything in our power to use grace to prepare hearts to receive this amazing truth. I came across a cool story in a book that I'm reading I haven't read it all, so I hesitate to recommend it. There might be some crazy stuff in there, but it's called Unoffendable. Here's what the author writes. He says, my friend Michael is a very evangelical Christian. He decided to open a coffee shop in the downtown of a city with a large university in the middle of a thriving art scene. He opened it right in the middle of the usual assortment of feminist bookstores and hipster apartments. He planned to bring in big name Christian musicians for concerts and feature evangelical speakers. The local paper wrote about him and his wife and their purchase of one of the most significant buildings in the downtown area, as well as their evangelical plans for the coffee house. 
I winced when I saw the article. I had other friends in that neighborhood and knew none of them would welcome this development. In fact, before Michael bought the building, it had hosted the community's biggest arts event of the year. It was to benefit AIDS research and it featured local art, some of the very intentionally transgressive variety. We could see the culture war coming. One of the exhibit organizers saw Michael on the street and asked how things were going with the remodeling of the building. He also mentioned to Michael that of course, he and his team would be looking for a new place for the exhibition this year. Michael said, no, they wouldn't need to do that. They could still have the event at his building. They were welcome. The guy was stunned, really? He said, that's not necessary. He knew Michael wouldn't want this kind of crowd in his coffee house. Michael told him that not only were they welcome, but that he'd pay for all the catering. He'd buy wine and hors d'oeuvres. They couldn't believe it. What about the art that Michael would surely find offensive? Michael said they were welcome anyway, and they were. My wife and I went to the exhibit, and sure enough, we didn't like some of the art for a variety of reasons, though much of it was stunningly thoughtful and beautiful. But Michael had told the event organizers that he didn't need to appreciate all the art. He just wanted to make them feel at home. So instead of being evicted by Christians from the best location for the exhibit, the artists were welcome. Michael and his wife met everyone at the door. He dressed in a tuxedo, and he offered everyone chocolate-covered strawberries. Live music filled the room. It turned out to be the best exhibit the group had ever had. And that was Michael's style. He hugged everybody. He talked freely about Jesus, but people didn't mind. He told me he just talked to people about the goodness of God because he knew deep down that everyone is yearning for a God like that. An acquaintance of ours who ran the business nearby was open about her distaste for Christians and her affinity for Wicca or Richcraft, but she loved Michael and she listened to him talk about Jesus. She said she knew he was different because when she dropped by his coffee shop in her all black apparel, he'd run over and hug her. She knew he wasn't offended by her, he loved her, and not just as a project, he liked her even. Christians in the community wanted Michael to be offended, to draw another line in the sand. You're supposed to get angry and maybe even pick at those kinds of people. Michael fed them strawberries. And he was less interested in what some Christians thought than he was about his chance to introduce offensive people to a God who loves us all and wants to change us all. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for that reminder. And I pray for those that are listening online or at one of our campuses who have been hurt or pushed away by people of grace in the past, Christians. I pray that that would change. Would they know that they're welcome and that they're loved? Father, we're just reminded of the grace that you have shown us and the truth that has transformed our lives. We have so much to be thankful for. So right now, Father, we just wanna respond. <laughs> just respond and worship and praise. And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior we pray. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.